of James. And if you've read the book of James, as Midwesterners, I always hear men say, James is my favorite book. And I'm always like, then I don't know if you've read it with your whole heart because it is a slap to the face many times because James doesn't mince words. He's my favorite guy and he's my least favorite guy. The, the people that I enjoy the most say things to me without a bunch of words surrounding it. They just say it. Here's, it, here's what it is. And they tell you what you need to hear even though you don't always want to hear it. And uh, the most uh, blessed relationships I've had in the body of Christ have been the people that have not minced words and they've just said things to me in an authoritarian figure. And I, it's, it's what I need in order to respond because I'm thick-headed. And so James does this. And today we're going to talk about the tongue. So if you'll remember with me in James chapter 1, um, the theme of chapter 1 of James is patient endurance. And I put there for you James... Uh, he, he, marks, he, he tells us the marks of a mature Christian. James is so hard for us many times to receive what he has to say because he's telling us what our lives ought to look like if we are surrendered to the power of the Holy Spirit. That our lives should be drastically different from what they were before we received Christ and, and surrendered our lives to him. And if they're not drastically different, I would question whether or not you've actually received Christ. Because I read the gospel accounts and I see these men that were what they were. And then when Christ came, he did things in their lives that they couldn't refute. And when they left their interaction with Jesus for the very first time, from that point on in their life, their lives were changed completely. Uh, the woman at the well that he spoke with in John chapter 4, he spoke with her and he told her some very difficult things as a, as a man of God and as God himself. What did he say to her? She said, you know, he asked her a simple question and, and, and basically revealed the big pot of sin in her life. And she didn't leave him going, man, what a jerk. She left him going, come and meet the man who told me everything I ever did. She was excited that Jesus revealed to her that he knew about all of her sinful lifestyle. I, I don't know that I've ever met anybody that's responded like that. Most of the people that I say things to, they recoil and they say, I never want to talk to you again. But Jesus, the way that he approached her lovingly and yet full of truth, caused this woman to say, I want to follow you. I want everyone to know you. And so in the same way, uh, we are, are to be, as Christians, one of the marks of a mature Christian is we're able to patiently endure. And he talked about temptation. He talked about trials, just circumstances that happen to us. But the, the mark of a mature Christian isn't that all the problems go away. It's that our response to the problems causes us to be patient and full of endurance. Not necessarily because we like what we're going through, but because we can see that God has a purpose in it, that nothing is in vain. Even sickness and broken arms and you know, cancer. God uses all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. One of my best friends from college right now, she has breast cancer. And she has peace and hope, and yet she's still worried. But she's trusting Jesus in it, which makes it meaningful. She's been patient and enduring in patience, and she's already seen her husband go through back cancer. He had bone cyst in his back that caused him to not be able to walk, and he's been healed of it, and he thought, well, I've been through that. I guess we're, our family's done with that, and yet that's not the case. So 
in the Christian life, it doesn't mean that everything becomes rainbows and unicorns. It means that now we have a hope beyond the circumstances that causes us to live through the circumstances. So patient endurance is the mark of a mature Christian. Number two, chapter two, he exhorts the audience, these believers, to be doers of the word and not just hearers only. And if you'll remember with me in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus, having given the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7, he gets done teaching these very difficult truths, many of which I think were probably just, hey, we need to take these all down as notes because I'm going to have to absorb them later. And we notice that in the gospel accounts that they wrote down many of the teachings that he gave. But I think in many ways what he taught was so heavy that it's like taking a gallon jug and pouring it into one of those little Dixie cups. You pour it in and you go, man, I'll try to retain as much as I can, and yet most of it overflows, right? So I think that the disciples had that kind of feeling when Jesus was teaching the Sermon on the Mount, and yet what you can see is that all those teachings that he gave them, uh, they, they landed on soil that was able to produce fruit because James... Um, years later, is now writing the book of James, and many of the themes that he teaches on, you can actually find them in the Sermon on the Mount. And so even though he didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah while he was alive until his resurrection, James, the half-brother of Jesus, later on he becomes this leader in the church, and everything that he's teaching us, he's just quoting his half-brother, the guy that he rejected. So even though people might reject what you have to say about Jesus— even though they might be completely against him, they're still receiving some of it. God's using that word to sow into their hearts. And later, it's always later, when you plant a garden, you put the seed in, and it doesn't produce fruit until later. So don't give up on people. You don't know what they're receiving. But we have to be doers and not just those that listen to it. I can, we live in a day and age where I can get on my phone and I can download enough sermons to listen every hour, every minute of the day until next Sunday. But if I don't put any of those things to practice, then it doesn't do me any good. So today he's going to talk about the power of the tongue. And in James chapter 1, he says in verse 26, if anyone among you thinks that he's religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. So maybe you're devoted to God in your actions, but you're not devoted to God in how you speak and use your tongue. He says you could live the most pious life that anyone's ever seen, and yet if your tongue is not bridled, what is a bridle? There's going to be horse people in here that are going to throw tomatoes at me, but I'm going to try. A bridle is what you use, this little piece of metal. It goes in the mouth of the horse, and just by pulling on it, and, and manipulating it, you cause a huge horse, very powerful animal, to go in different directions. It, the bridle is actually what guides the horse. And yet, for the religious person, if you bridle every area of your life, and yet your tongue is not bridled in the same way, then everything else you do is useless. It's vain. And how many people have you met that have all kinds of good works, but because of what they've said in the wrong moment or in the wrong way has completely discredited everything they've done. Our tongues have that way of doing it. They're the mouthpiece. They're the billboard. 
Jesus said that, and we're going to go over it later, but out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if you've ever said something and afterwards said, I didn't really mean that. You may not have meant that, but that's what's in there, and so that's what's coming out. It's proving what you are, whether you want to disclaim it later or not. And so the power of the tongue, uh, the tongue has to be bridled. And so in James chapter 3, he continues on this thought of the tongue. He says, my brethren. Remember, he's speaking to regenerate Christian people. He's not speaking to the unbeliever. He's speaking to the church, the bride of Christ. So he says, my brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. This is not one of my favorite, favorite verses, by the way, because I will be judged for every word that I say as I teach. And, and so in this context, he's saying, let not many of you be those who, who teach the body of Christ. But that could be said for any area of life. We are all accountable for what we say, the ways that we pour into people, good and bad. We're accountable to God. Some of it will be rich and will be rewarded for it. It'll be under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And some of it will be wood, hay, and stubble that's going to burn up in the judgment. Not the judgment that decides whether or not we go to heaven or hell. That's not what he's talking about. That's the white throne judgment. If you're in Christ, you don't ever see that judgment. That will be the judgment of works that we see. And everything that we've done for Christ, in, in Christ, will be judged by fire. And all the stuff that's able to take the heat will actually prove to be what it is. Jewels, precious stones, the result of faith. And all the stuff that is wood, hay, and stubble that we did in the flesh, it's going to burn up and we won't be rewarded for it. And we're going to be bummed that we wasted our time on it. And so he says, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that teachers shall receive a stricter judgment. And so for me, I, I want to just take this verse and take it as an opportunity to say, pray for me. Because the things that I teach you with this Bible, especially with the internets and the people that hear it, I'm accountable for that. Stricter judgment on me based on what I say and what I propagate by my lifestyle. So my, my tongue always has to be under the power of the Holy Spirit. But for you, you have the same judgment coming. And so what are the things that you speak into the life of your children? What are the things that you speak into the life of your friends, your coworkers? Those words, whether they're ones you mean or the one I didn't really mean that, will be accountable for them. And those words have power to direct and redirect people's thoughts and ideologies. So we need to use our tongues for things that are value-adding and not taking away value. And so, the power of the tongue, verse 1, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment, for we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires or the captain. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. 
And so in verse 1 through 4, he talks about the power of the tongue to direct. The tongue has the ability to direct. And, and he gives two examples, the bit and the rudder. And we already talked about the power that is in a horse. You put a bit in that, the mouth of the horse, but it won't just work in any horse, will it? You can put a bit in a brand new horse that's not broken. You're wasting your time. If you can get it in the mouth, it, it doesn't know what to do with it. It doesn't know what the movement means. It doesn't know what the, the, the lead is on the side of its neck. It doesn't, it just, it's power, but it's out of control. But if you take a bit and you put it in a trained horse, there's, there's increase, there's power, there's control, and then there's usefulness. You put a plow on the back of a horse that's trained and then you control it with the bit, you can break up hard ground and you can produce literal fruit. You can plant entire fields. We don't do it that way anymore, right? But we still have a big horse, usually a tractor, that if you don't put the key in there, and you don't have somebody that knows how to drive it, it's, it's just going to go all over the field and destroy things. And as a young man, I worked on a farm for several summers. And because my boss was gracious and paid me very little, I, I was able to break a lot of stuff and learn. <laughs> if you know anything about farming, stuff breaks. And if you don't know anything about farming and you're farming, even more stuff breaks. That, that's my testimony. I was a greenhorn. I don't know why he let me drive a Ford 5000 with a crop, you know, crop row tractor where I'm sitting 10 feet in the air and pulling a 16-foot batwing um, uh, brush hog. Yeah, there you go. Thanks. Um, but, but I did it, and I didn't die, so I'm thankful for that. Thank you, Jesus. That wasn't me. Um, but but there, was, there was a lot of work that happened because as I learned how to drive the tractor, I could get a lot more done than if I just had a horse. Or if I just had me. And so, um, but in the same way, the, the rudder on a ship. You put a ship even on a small lake. Go to Bismarck Lake. You put in your little John boat. And, and you have that rudder down there. Now, I had one of those little bass trackers from the 80s. And I bought it used. And it worked great. I had a steering wheel. That was my goal, get a steering wheel boat. Right? But there's all kinds of other things that break on it because it's old but that's what I can afford. So I get the boat out there. I'm going fishing. When we finally got the carbs lined out, I'm driving this boat. Of course, you can't really do more than idle on Bismarck Lake. So you got this big heavy engine for no reason. And then you tilt it up with the hydraulics because it's got a hydraulic button. Whew, living on the high life. And I pull that thing up. And then as I'm fishing, that thing goes, because the O-rings are going bad in it. So when it drops... What I remember growing up is we would go out to Bismarck Lake and we would have this cheap little John boat and we'd pull the battery out of my dad's car. We'd put it in the boat. We'd put the, you know, the, the little trolling motor on there. We'd go out to the middle, pull the trolling motor up, and then we'd throw in four lines. And we would drift fish the entire length. We'd put jigs on there and crickets. And we would just, as soon as you got into a school of them, it was fun. Bam, 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 bam. That's the kind of fishing I like. It's exciting. I like catching, not fishing. But... <laughs> But so I get my own boat and I've got this in my mind. I'm going to go out there and drift fish, relive the old days. And I get out there and as the, the motor drops, what happens? It becomes a rudder. And then I'm no longer going sideways with the wind. I'm going like this because the whole boat's moving. But that rudder is meant to direct the boat. 
And no matter how much wind is there, if the rudder is being directed by the captain with a little steering wheel, even on a boat as big as in this picture, that's the ark down in uh, Kentucky, the, the model of it, that rudder there was placed there by God in order to keep the thing from going sideways on the waves. No matter how much wind would blow, no matter how big the seas got, it would keep it going straight with the water and keep it from tipping over or listing. And so this rudder has power to direct. Do you know your, your tongue has power to direct a life? Many of us would say, well, I don't, I don't have an audience to direct lives. But the reality is we all have a realm of influence. We all have a lane that we're running in and there are people that are close to us. And I want to ask, do you use your tongue as a way to add value to someone's life? Blessing, speaking blessing over them? Or do you use your tongue cursing? And before you say, no, I don't curse, I don't cuss, I don't chew, I don't go with girls that do, maybe you speak cursing into people's lives and you don't realize it. Cursing means to talk down to them, means to speak to them as if they're not a person made in the image of God like you are, to speak to them like they are not human, to talk to, in a way that removes value, to makes, the, makes them think less of themselves. And we're all tempted to do this because we all get frustrated. We all get, I, I'm teaching this this week, so all week long the Lord's going, how do you use your tongue? And all week long, I'm going, apparently not very well. And, and so, so we have to be careful that we're directing in the proper direction. And if you think about this, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, what, is, what does God tell his people? He says, you're going to be different. So what I want you to do, I'm going to turn there so I don't misquote. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 6, my Bible says uh, the, the greatest commandment. He says, this is the commandment and these are the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you that you may observe them in the land which you're crossing over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God, keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you, you and your son and your grandson all the days of your life and that your days may be prolonged. He says, therefore, hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you, a land flowing with milk and honey. And then he gives the great Shema, the great blessing. Shema means to hear. He says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's one God, one and he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. So everything about you is to be about loving God with your being, every ounce of it. But then he says, and these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. So it all starts with us as individuals for the Israelites. It started not with, okay, you need to know these things so you could teach your kids. He says, first of all, it has to happen in you. You can only give people what you already have. No more, no less. So my love for you is to make you to a point where you want to love me back 
and I want your heart to be fixed on that task. But then he says in verse 7, once it's affected you, he says, you shall teach them diligently to your children as, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house. So all of this is how they talk about the Lord in every area of their life. So remember, as I'm reading these things, he says, you shall talk of them. You should talk about Jesus and what he's done in your life at home. He said, you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down at night, when you rise up in the morning. So when am I supposed to talk about the Lord and use my tongue as a way to speak about God into the lives of my kids? You might say, I don't really have that much time. He doesn't say, set apart a time, do nothing, just, although I think there are times for that. What he says is, when you rise up, when you lay down, when you're going somewhere, all the time, they're all teachable moments. And so those are ways that we can speak blessing and value into our children's lives just by using our tongue. And if you say, well, I don't know that I can teach my kids a whole lot about Jesus. And I would say to you, Don't try to teach them some sort of theological treatise. Don't try to do a sermon. Take the one thing that God's shown you that day for you and just repeat it to them. It'll do two things. It'll cause you to be more intently listening to the Lord throughout your day. And number two, it will cause you to teach them the things that you're already learning. And there will be unity in your household. So that's a blessing. So the power of the tongue to direct is in verse 1 through 4. But then he starts in verse 5, and he talks about the power of the tongue to destroy. My little clicker is not working. If you click on the easy worship thing, it should let me use it. There we go. The power of the tongue to destroy, verse 5. See how great a forest a little kind—excuse me. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body, and it sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea, is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Wow. So there's, there's a pretty little encouragement for you. There's a Bible promise to put on your fridge. Your tongue is wicked and evil, and it sets on fire nature, and it's lit on fire by hell. The power of the tongue, there is power in the tongue to destroy a person and to destroy families and to destroy life. He gives an example, two examples of things that are able to destroy the fire and the poisonous animal. Now, if you've spent any time in Missouri, you know we have the beloved copperhead. There is power in that animal with a bite to destroy life. It's it's part of the fall, I believe, that, that these animals that were once living together in the garden because of enmity, because of Um, just sin entering in, all of a sudden we're all afraid of each other. And there's going to come a time where the the creation is going to be set right again. It's going to be redeemed. And it says that a lion and a lamb are going to lay together. 
and, and a, a child, a baby, will actually be able to lay down in a den of serpents. That sounds like a horrible idea right now. Sounds like the most deadly idea. You know, in the den is also the baby snakes, and they're supposedly more poisonous. But the tongue is just as dangerous. And so this, this tongue that we have, if we're not careful, can destroy just as much as bring blessing. He says, see how great a forest this little fire kindles. And, and any of us that have ever spoken know that with saying the wrong thing, we could set on fire an entire family. There are entire families that are destroyed, tore up from the floor up because of something that someone said in the past. And that thing, for whatever reason, once you say it, you can't unsay it. But I've said this before, you never have to unsay anything that you've never said. So we've already read in James where it says, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. So if we would just hear that warning and heed it, how many arguments, how many broken families, how many uh, job firings, how many days of ISS, how many friendships would still exist just due to the fact that you didn't say what you thought you should say in the moment. And so have you ever thought about before you speak, when you're in the heat of the moment, not saying what you're getting ready to say, even though you feel like it's the totally right thing to say. Just yesterday, I said something to my wife, and afterwards I was like, that was totally inconsistent with Jesus. That was totally inconsistent with someone who loves the Lord. That wasn't blessing, that was cursing. And I didn't curse at her, but I said something that was harmful. And later the Lord reminded me when we were in another discussion, and I just stopped and I go, wait a minute, I need to apologize. So while we can set on fire, we can also put out fires with our tongues. Men, we're the least likely to say, I'm sorry. Say you're sorry and stinking mean it. Not just because it's the right thing to say. My kids all the time say they're sorry because I make them. Don't make God make you say sorry. Be soft to your families and say you're sorry. It speaks volumes to your children. If you've ever noticed that your, your kids speak to you in a certain way, uh, many times they're just reflecting how you talk to each other or to them. So be careful how you use this tongue because it's like a box of matches. You don't have to, for whatever reason, if I want to start a fire at my house and get the, heat, the house all warmed up, it takes all this preparation and balling up the newspaper and getting kindling and all this. But if I want to set the woods on fire, all I got to do is haphazardly flick some ashes. And for whatever reason, it just takes off. In Southern California and in some of those places where it's desert and the place is surrounded by palm trees, you always see those wildfires down there. And you're like, what are they doing? They have so many laws against campfire. They're not because of campfires. They're usually because just a little ash, just a little flicker of something hits one of those trees that's covered in sap that's pretty much like kerosene. And then the wind blows and it's over. Entire cities are burned down. We need to recognize that we have those little cinders. We have those, a box of matches in our mouth. And if, uh, not, and if not surrendered to the control of the Holy Spirit, you're, you're destroying people and you don't even realize it. 
Entire cities are being destroyed by what we say and by what we don't say. And in today's day and age, we're even more emboldened if you're not careful because social media exists. And then we say something to someone and the whole world gets to see it. So not only did the person that you were trying to harm get harmed, but everyone else that read it was brought down a notch by your speaking. So many people are so quick to complain and to throw up problems and to give bad reviews. And if they had to say these things to people's faces, most of them wouldn't say it. MSN Messenger came out. I'm dating myself for some of you youngins that don't know what that is. But MSN Messenger came out when I was in high school. And I would say things to people on MSN Messenger because I was sitting in my house and I didn't have to look people in the face. But if I had a if I'd have even had the inkling to say, or, or the, if I ever had the strength to say that, I never would have. I don't like confrontation. But for whatever reason, because there was a computer between me and them, I just let it rip. And I know that there are things that people still remember me saying, going, that guy's a jerk. And I was. Reality. So we have to be careful. The, the tongue can be deadly. And all it takes is for the wrong attitude, and it comes out in the tongue. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, Jesus said, up out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so the antidote for saying the wrong thing is not to just try to say the right things, but it's asking the Lord, fill my heart with the right things. Fill my heart with blessing. Fill my heart with joy. Fill my heart with true love for people that I don't agree with so that I can speak into them life, the life that I've received from Christ. I think this is interesting because I just this week was listening to a podcast, and on this podcast, um, they did this whole five-minute segment on uh, when to keep your mouth shut. And they started reading them, and it was all Proverbs. And in my mind, I was going to search through Proverbs because if you want to know how to control the tongue and things to say and when not to say things, uh, why don't you look at Proverbs? matter of fact, if you're looking for a daily devotional and you don't know what to do, there are 31 Proverbs, and guess what? Most months have around 30 to 31 days. So read them, and as you read them, you realize that every proverb has some sort of instruction on how to use the tongue and how not to keep use the tongue. So I emailed this to myself, and with big bold letters, when to keep your mouth shut, okay? So just real quickly, just a few, when to keep your mouth shut. In the heat of anger, Proverbs 14, 17, keep your mouth shut in the heat of anger. Proverbs 18, 13, when you don't have all the facts, which is pretty much all the time, right? Um, Deuteronomy 17, verse 6, when you haven't verified the story, when it's just hearsay, you need a testimony of two or three witnesses. That's just scripture 101. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 11. I said these were Proverbs. They're not all Proverbs. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 11. If your words will offend a weaker brother. A weaker brother. Somebody that's not as far along in the grace of the Lord. Don't say it. Uh, Number six. Number five. If your words will be a proof reflection of the... Sorry. A poor reflection of the Lord or your friends and family. Uh, Second uh, Peter... Chapter 2, verse 21 through 23. Uh, Proverbs 14, 9. When you're tempted to joke about sin, when you want to joke around about something that's actually sinful and cause it to be kind of haphazard, uh, don't say it. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 8. When you would be ashamed of your words later. 
We don't often think about how am I going to feel about saying this later. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 2, when you're tempted to make light of holy things, speaking the Lord's name in vain, doesn't always mean that you're cussing. Speaking the Lord's name in vain can actually just mean talking about him like he's just common. Instead of hallowed be thy name, holy is his name. Speaking of him as if he is a holy, powerful God. Proverbs 17, verse 27, if your words would convey a wrong impression, if the issue is none of your business, Proverbs 14, verse 10, when you're tempted to tell an outright lie, Proverbs 14, excuse me, 4, verse 24, if your words will damage someone's reputation, you ever thought about that? Is what I'm about to say going to damage someone else's reputation? Then I shouldn't say it. Uh, Proverbs 25, 28, if your words will destroy a friendship. Something to think about. Don't say it. Um, when you're feeling critical, James 3, 9. If you can't speak without yelling. We just had a conversation about that last night. Proverbs 25, 28. When it's time to listen, don't speak. Proverbs 13, verse 1. If you may have to eat your words later. If you have already said it more than one time, then it becomes nagging. Proverbs 19, 13, don't nag. When you're tempted to flatter a wicked person and when you're supposed to be working instead of talking, don't talk, work. Whosoever keepeth his mouth and his tongue, I can't see the bottom, keepeth his soul from trouble. And that's in Proverbs as well. So here's the reality though. We read that and we go, I guess I don't ever get to talk. And I would say, yeah, in those situations, you're right. You don't get to talk. <clears throat> so our knee-jerk reaction to Scripture sometimes is to go, well, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. Our first reaction many times is to say, then I'll just never talk. When I say the wrong things and I get in trouble for it, I go, fine, I won't talk anymore. That ain't going to happen, by the way. But it's a neat ideal. Or the other side of it is we go, um... I get to say whatever I want. I'm an American, and I got my rights. And the reality is the only right that we really have is the right to remain silent because most of what we say is malarkey anyway. So the question becomes, is God telling me to never talk? Or is he telling me I always got the freedom to talk? And I don't think that we can get either of those. I think it comes down to letting the Spirit guide how we speak. I think it comes down to being surrendered to the fact that we're not infallible. That the words that we say can be poisonous, but they can also be righteous and good. Recognizing that and saying, okay, Lord, can you be my filter? Lord, can you filter my tongue? Because I got all kinds of craziness going on in here, and I'm not where I'm supposed to be yet completely, and yet you've called me to speak and not be silent. As a matter of fact, as a pastor, I heard somebody say this this week. Sometimes the most loving thing as a pastor that I can say to a person is, why are you doing that? And I don't think I ever say that. I think I get mad when people do crazy things, and then I hold it all to myself. But as a pastor, I'm supposed to speak and sometimes correct. So I'm supposed to sometimes say, why are you doing that? And as parents, you can relate. Sometimes you're supposed to say to your kids, no, and why are you doing that? Because you love them. God does it for us. Why wouldn't we do it for others? Just because we don't agree with somebody doesn't mean we're not supposed to speak. 
God corrects those that he loves. He rebukes every child that he receives. And so, on to ch- uh, chapter th- 3, verse 9, as we close in verse 9 through 12. With the tongue we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, and I, I can kind of sense a, a heart of concern and holy love when he says this. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives or grapevine bear frigs? Frigs? Figs? <laughs> What's a frig? I'm going to have to Google that. He says, thus, no spring yields both salt water and fresh. So there's power in the tongue to direct. There's power in the tongue to destroy. And there's power in the tongue to delight. The reality is our tongues are made to delight the Lord. And the reality is he gives two examples here, the spring and the tree. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 11 says, The mouth of a righteous man is a well of life. And the reality is, many times, it is a well of life, and then there's other times where it's a well of death and cursing. And the reality is, what he says here is that (laughs) with our tongues, he's not saying this is a hypothetical situation. He's saying in the church that he was in and leading, he noticed that with the tongues, they were blessing God. They were singing praises on Sunday morning. And as soon as they got in the car on the way home, obviously they didn't have cars, I get that. But they were getting in the car, or in the, they were walking home, and they were using their tongues that they had just used to praise their creator, to lift up his name. And they were putting each other down. They were arguing. They were spouting off attitude. They weren't honoring their mother and their father. They were cursing each other. The same spring that they had just allowed praise to pour forth from, they were now letting nastiness pour forth and expecting that God would just accept their praise. If you have a spring that's putting forth bitter water, there isn't any fresh coming from it. It's all tainted. And so he says there, Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. These things ought not to be so. A fig tree, reality, cannot produce olives, and a grapevine doesn't produce figs. And a a heart that is resided in by the Holy Spirit cannot produce filthiness. And so what are we supposed to do about it? The reality is the hung, the, the hung, the tongue is connected to the heart. And the heart is full of whatever it's full of. So in Matthew chapter 15, verse 18 through 19, uh, it says, Those things which proceed out of your mouth come from the heart, and those are what defiles a man. And Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 says, What we need to do is keep our heart with all diligence. For out of it proceed the issues of life. How do we keep our heart? The, the word there, keep your heart, is like housekeeping. How do we keep our homes? Well, we pay the bills, right? But that's not the idea. How do we keep our homes where we want them? We, we 
take care of them. We, we're paying attention to the, the clutter. We're paying attention to the junk drawer. We're paying attention to the dust or, or whatever the thing is that drives you the most nuts. Our thing right now is the, the dog hair. We keep our house, my wife keeps our house with all diligence because the stinking dog sheds more than any dog I've ever seen. I, don't, I love this dog. We obviously do, otherwise we'd have already gotten rid of it. But the hair, it's like one of those dandelions that it's like an everlasting dandelion. You know, just the wind blows and it's like, poof, and there's more. It's like, you sh- the dog should be bald by now. <laughs> Reality. But keeping our home is a constant. She's like a Roomba. If we had a Roomba, she's like one of those. I'm sitting still. I'm like, oh, I'm going to relax for a little bit. She's like, I need to sweep the floor again. And next thing you know, she's going through. And then Lucy's like full of energy and she's running circles. She goes, hey, take the Swiffer. Go, go to work. Let's do something with this. You know, but we keep the house with diligence. So many of us do that with our homes. But how, how often do we do that with our hearts? How often do we say, Lord, search my heart and know me intimately and see if there's any wicked way within me. I know there's got to be because I just said this to my wife. I know there's got to be because this is the way I'm talking to the people I work with. I know that there's, there's some dirtiness. There's some dog hair in there. Lord, can you send the Roomba around? Can you send the Holy Spirit to search me and try me and know me? And then here's the other thing. Why don't you make sure he's got a key to every room in your heart? Why don't you make sure that he's got full access? Don't don't lock a door and say, Lord, you can have everything. Uh, Keep this one closed. You don't want to look in there. That's where all the laundry is. You know, like we do when we have people over. We got certain areas where like, oh, you got yellow tape over it, you know, or or we just say, oh, uh, you don't want to go in there. But the reality is God wants to go in every room. He already knows what's there anyway. Let him search it. Let him know you. That's where sweet grace comes in because when he finds that stuff, he he doesn't go, what's your problem? I'm done with you. He goes, I knew it was there. Thanks for finally letting me have access. Let me clean it up for you. And he doesn't just go in there with one of those brooms, those whisk brooms, and start brushing the dust around. See, his spirit comes in, and it's it's like a water bottle. It's like a Swiffer wet jet. It goes in there. I'm all on Swiffer, not a sponsor, not a sponsor. But he goes in there and he sprays that juice on the floor. And then he takes the Swiffer and he pushes it around. You ever notice what happens when you sweep with one of those whisk brooms? The floor is clean. It's great, kind of. But then every shelf in the room is completely covered in dust. You, didn't, you just moved it. You didn't clean it. And many of us are trying to clean our own hearts just like that. We're sweating it out. We're working hard. And we're dirtier than when we started. And the Lord says, I sent my spirit to go into you and cleanse you and make you new. And I'm not just going to swiffer the dust all over the place. I'm going to spray the juice, the Holy Spirit, the anointing oil, and then I'm going to wipe it up. And it's not just going to be cleansed a little bit. It's going to be completely like a new house. So a heart filled with God's word, yielded to the leading of the Holy Spirit, will make you a refreshing spring and a fruitful tree to others. So one more reference. We're going to go to Colossians chapter 4. And that's because that's, this is what I learned on uh, a couple of weeks at uh, Parkland Chapel in Farmington. My buddy Brock's been teaching Colossians. So just so you know, 
when I'm not here teaching and we don't have Wednesday nights, it's because I need to get fed too. I need the Lord to teach me new things. Colossians chapter 4, verse 6. In verse 5, he says, Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Verse 6, he says, Let your speech always be with grace. Let your talk be filled with grace. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. You got somebody that you don't like? Speak to them with grace. They don't deserve love in your mind? Guess what? Neither did you from Jesus. So speak with grace. He says, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, the idea of purity, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. And then go down to verse 8. He says, I am sending... Verse 8, that's, that can't be right. Sorry, give me a second. That is not the verses I wanted. Okay, verse 8. Sorry, verse 8 of chapter 3. He says this, But now you yourselves are to put off all these. And he lists them, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. He says, don't use your tongue to lie to one another, since you have put off the old man and his deeds, and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. So put off the works of the flesh, and these are all things that affect our tongues, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Don't lie to each other. Put off these old habits, these old ways of using our tongue. And then he says, and put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So the question becomes, are you still letting the flesh control your tongue or are you letting God control your tongue? And you'll know that based on what comes out. You'll know that based on the fruit that your life produces. You'll know that based on the water that flows from your heart. And God gives us that so we can see for ourselves, but we have to be willing to say, Lord, what, what's coming out of my heart? What's the motivator of my tongue? And so, Father, we uh, come to you this morning in need of you to change the source of the stream that flows from our face. Lord, we do need to be quick to hear. We have two ears and one mouth. That's double the listening, half the speaking. But I know that many times my mouth gets ahead of my brain, my mouth gets ahead of my ears, and I, I answer before I've heard the whole thing. So this message is just as much for me, if not for anybody else, Lord. It's uh, a constant battle. We need you to redeem the words that we speak. We need you to change what's in our hearts so that we can speak blessing. Father, I thank you for your correction that's loving. I thank you for your grace that has allowed me to go this far. But I pray, Father, that, that as I move forward and as I grow, that you would change my heart inwardly. And I pray that for everyone here. Lord, that you would take every room in our heart and cleanse it and make it pure. But I also pray, Father, that as we have opportunities to speak, that we would not be silent but instead that we would speak what you've shown us. 
Lord, help us to be those who lead our families. Help us to be those who, uh, instead of joining in in the, the, the office complaining, that we would get to work and stop talking. But in the ways that you give us to lift people up, instead of complaining, to be thankful in all circumstances and hopefully change uh, the very way that the, the setting that we work in looks and what's being talked about. Help us to have an impact. Help us to purify the minds of those around us by our behavior, but also by the way that we speak. Help us not to say things that would discredit the ministry of the work of the Holy Spirit that's evident in our lives. Help us not to hide our light under a bushel. Lord, we need you in this because if any man can tame the tongue, he's able to tame his whole body. And yet, Father, what James has just written is that no man can tame the tongue. It's a deadly, poisonous, fiery beast. So, Father, that tells me that we need you to tame our tongue. So I hope I can agree with everybody in here today, Lord. We want your Spirit to fill us once again and to pour forth rivers of living water up and out of our tongues and into the lives of others. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your willingness to submit. I have no doubt that you were tempted to say things in this life because of the circumstances you lived in. And yet, even when people were spitting on you, even when people were jamming thorns into your head, you didn't open your mouth. You didn't complain. You submitted wholly to the will of the Father. And I'm just grateful for that example. And I pray, as I prayed earlier, that I would decrease and that you would increase. Lord, change the face of our families. Change the way that our workplaces look. Change this valley. Use our voices that you've given us, the breath in our lungs, to speak blessing, to speak correction, to love people with our words, and help us to do it for your glory. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.